Thank you, Juliet. Well, do keep your, those church Bibles open, or if it's closed, do open it up and join me. It's on page 1226. Uh, and if you're watching online, uh, you can pause. You can't do that in church, but you can pause and uh, grab a Bible and so have this uh, passage open in front of you. Let's uh, pray together. Loving Father, thank you for gathering us around your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit uh, teach us and uh, put within us a deep desire for the hope that we will discover in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is it that we as Christians have to offer our families, our friends, our neighbors, and our work colleagues? What is it that the Church of Jesus Christ has to offer the people of Chesham and surrounding villages, young and old, rich and poor? Well, the answer in one word is hope. But more specifically, because there are lots of different hopes out there, gospel hope, hope that's found in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And offering gospel hope, as Jeremy reminded us, is one of the three core St. Mary's values that we're exploring this autumn. We want to highlight these values so if you're new to St. Mary's and want to know what we're about or uh, we want to know where are we going in the years ahead, that we've got these three values to to help us like a compass navigate uh, the years that lie ahead for us. So this morning we're thinking about offering gospel hope and thinking about what's involved in that. And from our, from our reading in 1 John, uh, written by Jesus' friend and chosen apostle, he's, oh dear, I'm so sorry, they've set themselves off, haven't they? Never are. <laughs> there we are. I'll join us again in a moment. There we are. Um, we're going to be thinking about not just what the gospel hope is, but also what there's a false hope here as well in this passage that we need to watch out for and that John is warning the Christians he writes to, to avoid. So we're going to just dive in firstly and look at what offering gospel hope looks like. And you've got on your back of your service sheets a little sort of space for sermon notes if you want to jot down uh, some notes as well that might help you uh, reflect on this in the week ahead. So offering gospel hope. Look with me in your new church Bibles at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3. We read these words, all who have this hope in him, all who have this hope in him. And what is this hope? Well, John has just explained it in the previous verse. Verse 2, dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this hope that we have to offer the world then is this, that if we follow Jesus, one day, ultimately, he will make us like he is. He will make us like him. Now, John gives us a clear picture in in this passage of what that actually looks like, what Jesus himself is like. So in the previous, last verse of chapter two, we read that he is righteous. Jesus is righteous with his father in heaven. He has a right relationship with his father. All that his father commands, he obeys. That's what John has observed with his three years at Jesus' side. He's also 
verse uh, 3 of chapter 3, pure. That is, Jesus is morally clean. There is no impurity, even in his hidden thought life, in Jesus' life. No stain upon his soul. And uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read at the end of verse 5, in him is no sin. Nothing stands to his account. He has no moral debts that he has built up. When the books are opened on his 30-odd years on earth, not a single sin is to be found. Jesus is spotless, like father, like son. And like the father, he is motivated, chapter 3, verse 1, by a, a great love for all of creation. And so we see in Jesus this, this great love, this, this eternal life that flows through his veins, his perfect spotless record. And all this, we're told, is what we will one day become. That is the transformation that Jesus will bring about in the lives of all those who follow him. That one day we too will be like him, righteous before God, righteous in our dealings with others, pure in thought and deed. Our moral debts will be settled and paid for by Jesus himself. We will be without sin or stain. All our sorrows and all our aches and pains will be gone forever. All the, the, all the effects of sin in our world, the disease and the decay and the death, will be finished and passed and done with. And we will be the children of God, dwelling with our Father, alongside his Son, in what will be a new heaven and a new earth. And all that we do will be motivated by that same great love, that deep and abiding divine love. It is a glorious, breathtaking hope, isn't it? If we've ever yearned to be better than we are, if we seek, said you know, modern people talk about, uh, uh, the best version of ourselves, well, in his life, in Jesus' life, he shows us what that looks like. This is the gospel hope that the Church of Christ has to offer the world. Come to Jesus, invite him into your life by his spirit, and he will shape you into a perfect whole human being, just like him. Not clones with no individuality. That used to worry me about becoming a Christian, that I would end up as a clone with my own personality being suppressed. Not that, but rather the unique human being that we were created to be perfected, made whole, washed clean without sin. That is our hope, and it is a glorious hope. As John puts at the end of chapter 2, we will be able to stand through our faith in Christ in the presence of purity and righteousness itself. We will be able to stand in Jesus' presence unashamed and confident not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done in us. And it's not just pie in the sky when you die. Actually, if this is your hope, it will shape every day for the rest of your lives. Because what we hope in makes us what we are. Now, one cue, that I don't really like cues, I'm not a great one when it comes to traffic jams, uh, but one cue that is worth enduring is the cue to gain entrance to the Academia Gallery in Florence. Ever been there? The last time I went there, it took, it took about three hours to uh, queue to get in. But inside this uh, 
gallery is the statue of Michelangelo's David. There it is, crafted from a single piece of marble. Michelangelo was 26 years old when he began. It took him two years to finish this masterpiece, but has yet to be bettered something and has lasted for over 500 years. He started in 1501. Amazing. But to those who invite him to do so, Jesus, the master craftsman, with his skilled eye and an expert eye, chisels away at all our flaws and blemishes until one day in glory we see the finished product, a life that will be able to stand in the presence of God Almighty forever. But there has, over recent years, been a a massive increase in self-help guides and self-improvement gurus. You can spend hours on YouTube listening to uh, all the different advice. People look today in every direction but Jesus for advice in how to be a better version of themselves. And yet when you think about it, all these self-help books are written by sinful, flawed human beings. And they are ultimately, therefore, the blind leading the blind. At their best, they can only help us at a superficial level. They lack Jesus' expert master craftsman's eye. And so uh, we need to to, to sort of focus on him for for that hope and not elsewhere. As you approach uh, Michelangelo's statue of David, there is a room, if you can see it there on the screen, uh, filled with other statues, but which are unfinished figures where it's like humans are still caught in the stone, almost fighting to set free. And Michelangelo left them deliberately as they are trapped in the marble. And in a way, that's all that these secular writers can do to us. They leave us trapped in our failings and our flaws, burdened by our sins and mistakes of the past. They do not give us a true compass by which to be guided in our lives. It's Jesus and him alone who can finish the job, set us free from the stone and create that masterpiece in our lives. So this then is the gospel hope that we have to offer. It's not just for people brought up in Christian homes going to church. It's not just for middle class people. It's for working class people. It's for even for kings and queens. It's for everybody. It's not just for people who've got their life sorted or for those whose lives are in a complete mess. John says, have a look again at uh, chapter 3, verse 3, all who have this hope in him. This hope is for all, for everyone who puts their trust in this hope, this, this hope that Jesus gives us. It is therefore hope for everyone here this morning. And as a church, we want to ensure that we are always offering this gospel hope to others. So you'll find us doing that regularly here on Sundays. And uh, in such a way that I hope that you'll be able to bring your friends and and family friends so they can hear this this wonderful, unique hope. And I hope you've made this hope your own. And why not, if you haven't done that, do that this morning. I want to make this wonderful vision the guide and path for my life. And looking back over the past year, We've had a wonderful time offering this uh, gospel hope to others. The Jubilee uh, Street Party was a great, great day, great fun. Uh, Six hours, some people did six hours of face painting. Uh, John survived and others survived as well. Um, And uh, we were handing out books about the Queen's hope in Christ. uh, And it was a wonderful day. 
We have a holiday club as well. Another wonderful opportunity to offer our town this gospel hope. And dare I mention the C word, Christmas. It's approaching. And just begin to think now about who we can invite, uh, families and uh, members of our family and friends as well, to a carol service um, to, uh, to hear this hope uh, proclaimed afresh again. And next year, we've got some exciting things in store as well. We'll tell you uh, into the new year. But I think because we often struggle to know how to speak of this hope to others, we also need as a help, I think, as a church to gain confidence in speaking of our faith to others. So we want to help us and think about how we can do that on Sundays and provide other opportunities to do that so that we're confident of this hope, which is such a great and wonderful hope that we want to share with others around us. So that's um, the first thing we want to do. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is this uh, gospel hope. But I want to then turn to the rest of the passage, really from verses 4 onwards, where John really details what has been offered to them was, was another hope, a false hope. And we want to see why that was, what that hope, what, what that false hope was, and why it was spiritually dangerous. So let's uh, move on and look at our second point, offering false hope. And we see it um, being talked about in verse 7 of chapter 3. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And how these false teachers were trying to lead these Christians astray off the safe and certain path of biblical faith, well, we can see it in what John sort of gives us his answer to, uh, to that question. And the, what he talks about for the, these verses is the subject of sin. And, so, and from what John says here, it seems that these false teachers were teaching something along the lines that sin doesn't matter. You could be a Christian, you could follow Jesus, but live how you liked. You could be right with God without really bothering about being righteous in your daily life. You didn't have to worry about living by the standards Jesus lived by. God's love was so lavish that like an indulgent uh, grandparent, it didn't really matter how you lived, he would always forgive you. So John explains here that um, this is false hope because it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of sin. Have a look with me at verse 4 of chapter 3. John writes, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. How do we know whether we've sinned? Well, he says, by looking at God's laws. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. If we break a commandment, if we do not lie or do not steal or uh, do not covet, those are the commandments. But if we break those commandments and we steal and lie and, and covet, well, we sin, says John. It's as simple as that. That's what sin is. It's breaking God's commandments. But more than an action, it is itself an attitude. It reveals what's going on in our hearts. It reveals that we are lawless, he says, that we have cast aside God's laws. And in our hearts, we're in rebellion against our creator. We are lawless. We, are, we make up our morals as we go along. We decide what we will do, whether it's right or wrong. We don't say, God says what's right and wrong, and therefore I will do what God says. 
We say in the children's little definition of sin, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. And it's the very same attitude, uh, says John, that the devil has towards his creator. And it puts us in the same camp as the devil. The one who does what is sinful, says John, is of the devil, as in on the same team, in the same camp. But following Jesus involves taking a different path. Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago to take away our sins. His whole ministry was fixed upon that very purpose. His whole, uh, he came to destroy the devil's influence on humanity, which is why John says in verse 9 of chapter 3, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. When we come to Christ, our attitude changes. We are new people. We are born again people. The old way of rebellion against God is gone, and a new heart, which willingly submits to God's ways, takes its place. And so we stop rebelling in our hearts towards our maker, and we start trusting that in obeying his commands, we are being guided by a loving God. He's not seeking to spoil our fun, but show us the best way to live. We didn't trust God, and now we do trust God. That's what a Christian looks like, which is why these false teachers were wrong. Sin does matter to God. He is not indifferent to it, and God is in fact set on the ultimate removal of sin from his universe. It's why Jesus came, says John, to destroy, demolish the works of the devil and, and his sort of the camp he's been building to, of, in rebellion against God. And it mattered enough to Jesus to go through the agonizing death on the cross so that the sin in our life might be forgiven and removed from our hearts. Now, in talking about this in such sort of direct ways, when he talks about, you know, if we're a Christian, we're done with sin, it's worth saying that John is not saying that we will never sin if we follow Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 1, and we can do this because we've got our Bibles in front of us, uh, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 8, John says, if we claim to be without sin, and he's writing to Christians here, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what John is teaching here in chapter 3 is he's saying, well, you can't be a follower of Christ and carry on in your rebellion in your heart against God. You're either one or the other. You're a rebel or you're a follower. You can't be both. But if as a Christian and you've set yourself on following God, you slip and you do end up stealing something from the tax man or lying to a friend because uh, it's just, or it just gets you out of that tricky situation or lusting after what other people have, Ultimately, that's no longer who you really are or who you really want to be. And you will want to confess that sin quickly, receive forgiveness, and get back to obeying God's word. Not until we meet Jesus face to face will we be perfect and pure and sinless like him. And so in this life, there is that battle. We know where we want to be. If we're following Christ, we want to be like him. But we'll know that pull also of sin in our lives. And uh, occasionally we will slip up, but it's not who we want to be anymore. Now, last week, um, uh, Jeremy mentioned satnavs in his sermon. And uh, here are a few satnav failures. People have followed their satnav and uh, ended up in trouble. Uh, here's another one. 
and another, and another. How did the person think that this was a road? Uh, and one more, and there's, in fact, there's one more for mini fans. The road really did end. All these drivers were following their sat-navs in the hope of getting to their destination by the quickest route. Each of these drivers kept going until it was too late to turn back and they needed help. Uh, there was one, one of the guys who needed a helicopter to get, them, get the van out of trouble. They thought they had a guy who was going to guide them safely to their destination. But what they discovered was that they'd been offered false hope. They'd been led astray by their sat-navs, or perhaps by their reading of their sat-navs. And John says to his readers, he says to us, don't let that happen to you spiritually. Don't fall for the message that sin doesn't matter. Don't let yourself be led astray. Don't swap gospel hope for false hope. And yet we live in a culture, don't we, that has done just that. Education has been evacuated from all sense that sin matters. All that Jesus came to take away our sins and give us the hope of heaven. Our televisions glory in lawlessness because it entertains and titillates. Our society has not prepared us for what runs like a thread through this section. The day that Jesus will one day come and appear again. And whose child we are, whether we're a child of God or a child of the devil, where we ultimately belong, therefore, heaven or hell, is made clear. As a result, false hope is everywhere. It's in the air we breathe and is poisoning the well for our children and grandchildren and for our own souls. Which is why it's so important that you're here this morning stepping aside to drink clean, fresh water when we come to church, when we bathe ourselves and our families in the word of God, to marvel afresh at the love of God lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, to confess our sins and receive forgiveness afresh to be with our brothers and sisters in the family of God, which is another sign, says John, that we are part of God's family, that we want to be with God's people, and that we do continue in Christ, as John says, so that when he appears one day, or we go to be with him, we can be confident, unashamed in his presence. To, to say to ourselves every day, why don't we do it every day this week, Sin does matter. It's a false hope to think that it doesn't. But one day I will be like Jesus if I trust in him. So to conclude, Christians, we have a deep, lasting, life-affirming gospel hope to offer those around us. It is to be offered to young and old, rich and poor, churched and unchurched. One day we shall see Jesus face to face and become like him, 100% pure, without even one sin to stain our souls. We will be made whole. All that is broken in our lives, all that uh, holds us back, all the mistakes of the past, we will be made new and will be with him forever. Such is the greatness of God's love that he promises to do this in each and every one of us if we trust in his Son. And it's a hope that shapes us now. It every day brings us closer to that day. It is a living hope. But it's not a hope that we can keep to ourselves. 
Because otherwise, both outside and within the church, we'll become beguiled by false hopes. And that will be far more serious than a sat-nav failure. Let's pray together. Let's just bow our heads and just ask ourselves, where does our hope lie? Is it truly, do we have a gospel hope? Or are we putting our trust in false hopes? Just take a moment just to center your heart and discover where its true compass lies. And then in the week ahead, who could we offer this gospel hope to? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you've shown us what false hope looks like, that sin doesn't matter. But thank you that you've shown us what a glorious hope we can look forward to. One day we will be with you forever. Amen. Amen.